We're all learning to live with the new normal. This will be the new normal. Normal. Our services as like community organizations are not really adequate to take the place of like a city that cares. You're listening to No New Normal, a special edition of CKUT's Off the Hour. The series aims to unpack the questions raised by the COVID-19 outbreak, examining the rifts exposed by the pandemic and the convergent struggles that are emerging in the aftermath of the quarantine. No New Normal broadcast from Jojage, the unceded territory of the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee Nations. You're listening to us on CKUT 90.3 FM. I'm Athena Khalid. Stay tuned for our fourth episode, Quarantine Without Shelter, Experiencing Homelessness During a Pandemic. In March, the provincial and federal governments responded to the outbreak of COVID-19 by telling us all to stay in our homes and to quarantine indefinitely. But people who were already experiencing homelessness had nowhere to go. The city was shut down completely, people stopped going into work, shelters closed, safe injection sites closed. The bare-bones infrastructure that existed to support people without shelter suddenly disappeared. When Montreal Mayor Valérie Plante declared a state of emergency, she cited the potential outbreak of COVID-19 in sheltered communities as one of the reasons for the city's response. Since then, the city has set up different outdoor tents which offer services and food to people who need it, taking after Resilience Montreal, which started in Cabo Square last November. But now, as things are opening up again, the city hasn't made their intentions clear regarding the services for people experiencing homelessness. Many worry that these services will be one of the first things to be cut when austerity measures kick in. To give us a layout of what conditions on the streets were like during the peak of the quarantine, Here's Mariana Racine Mendez, a community organizer at the Réseau d'aide aux personnes seules itinérantes de Montréal, or RAPSIM. Le RAPSIM, on est un regroupement qui défend les droits des personnes en situation d'itinérance ou à risque de l'être. On regroupe partout dans Montréal, on est rendu à 112 organismes communautaires qui travaillent auprès des populations en situation d'itinérance. On a eu aussi euh, tous les lieux publics. Donc, les personnes en situation d'itinérance pouvaient avoir accès à des lieux publics puis juste être. Donc, euh, par exemple, aller dans un, un café là, à moindre coût, passer quelques heures là, à l'air la, climatisé, pouvoir utiliser les toilettes. Donc, euh, tout ça, ça a été vraiment aussi un, un enjeu très, très grand. Les installations sanitaires, on sait qu'à Montréal, euh, elles sont insuffisantes. Ça fait des années qu'on demande plus d'installations sanitaires, plus de toilettes dans l'air public, accès à l'eau potable. Cette année, ça a été particulièrement marquant parce que euh, tous les commerces refusaient l'accès à leur salle de bain. Puis, euh, lors de la première vague de chaleur, la première canicule, euh, les abreuvoirs étaient toujours pas ouverts dans les parcs à Montréal parce qu'on avait peur, euh, la, la ville avait peur que ce soit un vecteur euh, de contagion. Donc, on a eu des épisodes avec des personnes en situation d'itinérance qui ont souffert de coups de chaleur. 
euh, qui ont vécu des malaises, qui étaient à la recherche activement d'eau potable puis qui avaient de la difficulté à en trouver, à part dans les organismes comme mon père qui leur donnait des bouteilles d'eau. Donc, euh, on n'a pas voulu que les gens euh, aisés euh, rentrent dans la pauvreté, mais les gens qui étaient déjà dans la pauvreté, les gens qui vivaient déjà la précarité, ceux-là, on n'a pas jugé qu'il était nécessaire de les aider. Puis c'est comme les grands oubliés de la crise, puis les grands oubliés de euh, toute l'aide là, gouvernementale. Puis euh, ces gens-là, bien, ils ont vécu avec les mêmes euh, les mêmes difficultés que le reste de la population, les dépenses supplémentaires. Quand on parle de la réduction des services des organismes communautaires, bien, ça veut dire que s'ils n'étaient plus en mesure d'être logés dans un organisme communautaire, ils ont dû trouver des manières de se loger autrement. Ça peut avoir coûté des sous. Euh, on sait que les, le prix des aliments, ça commence à être documenté. Le prix des aliments a aussi augmenté. Euh, puis les dépenses supplémentaires, les masques, etc. Donc, il n'y avait pas d'aide au gouvernement pour ces gens-là qui ont déjà de la difficulté euh, à arriver à chaque mois. En démantelant un campement, ces personnes-là ne vont pas juste euh, disparaître, cesser d'exister, au contraire. Euh, ils vont, euh, par la peur de se faire euh, démanteler à nouveau par la police, aller dans des lieux où ils vont être plus cachés. Mais euh, ça, ça a des conséquences très graves parce que euh, on pousse les gens qui sont déjà exclus de la société à s'exclure davantage. On les éloigne des services, on les éloigne des soins de santé, on les éloigne des organismes communautaires. Euh, moi, je peux comprendre une personne qui, euh, pour protéger sa santé ou simplement euh, par crainte là, de, de, de contagion, euh, peut décider de ne pas aller vivre dans un refuge. Tu sais, ça peut être... Ça peut être inquiétant. Vous et moi, on a la possibilité de s'isoler chez soi. On a la possibilité de choisir les gens qu'on fréquente. Mais pour une personne en situation d'itinérance qui se retrouve dans un refuge, il euh, n'y a pas ces choix-là. C'est de la vie euh, communale, malgré le fait qu'il y a des mesures de protection qui sont mises en place. Euh, on, c'est ça, c'est, les, les risques sont plus grands. Puis comme on l'a vu à Montréal, il y a eu des éclosions dans certains refuges. Donc, surtout quelqu'un ayant vécu ça, on, on doit leur reconnaître le droit de, de quitter, le droit de trouver une alternative qui leur convient, en attendant de leur donner réellement le, un droit au logement adapté. That was Mariana from Rapsim. Here's Liz Singh, the streetwork coordinator at Head and Hands. Hi, my name is Liz. Um, I have recently become the streetwork coordinator at Head and Hands, um, but for the last three and a half years, I have been a street worker there. So a street worker is, um, it's a form of travail de milieu. So my job is to spend time um, with youth who are uh, living, um, who are homeless or who are street involved. Um, and I include in that people who are like housing insecure or um, who are selling drugs um, or doing sex work on the street. So youth who have like a relationship with the environment of the street. Um, and I, um, I do accompaniment with them. Um, So if somebody needs to go to uh, a court or um, an appointment of some kind or needs a resource, um, then I'm a person who's around and they know some of the places that they were going um, during the day as well. So like the, you know, like the community centers and things like the day centers, right, are also closed. Um, and the day centers tend to offer like uh, a whole bunch of other services, like um, having a place to shower or like do your laundry. Um, and now, like, there's none of that. Like, there's not even, like, a place to go to the bathroom um, in a lot of the city, which is very, very hard on people. There was uh, a woman who um, who passed away in, like, a, a car accident, like, a few weekends, no, sorry, a few nights ago. It's been, sorry, it feels a long time, but um, on Monday night. And um, 
I, I think in a, in a, in a, in a way that seems like really um, indirect, but like, isn't like, that's like tied to, to COVID. So um, there's a whole like ecosystem of like services and like spaces that are, that became no longer available um, with the lockdown. And some of them have opened back up, but a lot of them haven't. Um, and just in terms of like, um, like, like a literal place to spend your time, right? Like during the day, that's the thing that's like really lacking in the city. And especially like with the heat, um, in the summertime, it's been really, really hard. So like, there's nowhere now, like a lot of the public places that people go to spend time, whether it's like an official place, like a day center or like unofficial kind of community spaces, like a mall or like a McDonald's or something like it's all just gone. Um, and that just pushes like, you know, hundreds of people like out onto the like street in Montreal and that, you know, where there are no resources like that, right, where there's no bathroom, where there's no place to get water, where it's just like really, really hot and there's no shelter. Um, I saw one of my colleagues um, advocating on the news for just like, like plants in front of one of the um, day shelters so that people could have a bit of shade. You know, like there's literally not shelter from the sun. Um, so it's uh, it's been really hard to manage that um, that change. Like we like our services as like community organizations are not really adequate to take the place of like a city that cares. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been really hard to see. Like it's it's these things that people who are housed um, take for granted, but they're really scarce and important resources. And right now, there's like like I know that resilience, like day center, like they opened up like an outdoor shower, um, but like that's like one, right? Like there's like approximately like four thousand um, homeless or like street involved people in Montreal, and they all need a shower. That was Liz from Head and Hands. And here's Jessica Quijano, the Ishwake Project Coordinator at Native Women's Shelter. Okay, so my name is Jessica Quijano. I work for, I'm the coordinator of the Ishwake Project at the Native Women's Shelter. So uh, the Ishwake Project is a project to address um, uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, trans and two spirits. So I work um, in assisting families or loved ones when an Indigenous woman or girl goes missing in putting pressure on the police so that they can... Uh, locate the uh, person and as well I do a bunch of prevention stuff uh, working a lot with the indigenous homeless community um, and you know trying to trying to find ways uh, and putting pressure so that we can end the social crisis well definitely it's been incredibly difficult during uh, the pandemic and I would say still today because a lot of services were shut down I mean a native women's shelter as well uh, started up uh, resilience Montreal uh, last fall, and um, because of COVID, they had to move outside because of the social distancing. And uh, resilience was a place where people could go sleep and rest, so that was taken away. And it actually took a while before we got services at uh, Dawson College so people can go sleep and rest. So, um, because of all the restaurants and um, fast food places where a lot of the homeless populations often go when there's no resources were closed down, um, that was shut down. So, just basic things like going to the bathroom, taking a shower uh, is incredibly challenging. And I'd say that like violence has gone up 
um, on the street in general, and but especially towards Indigenous women, um, like sexual assaults, um, assaults in general. So it's been actually a very, very, very difficult time for the homeless community um, in general in Montreal and the lack of services that have been offered by the government in the city. Jessica, Liz, and Mariana all say that the closure of all indoor spaces impacted people experiencing homelessness directly, especially in relation to bathrooms and other such facilities. But people shouldn't have to depend on restaurants and malls for their basic needs. The Native Women's Shelter had to close in May due to an outbreak in the shelter. Here's Jessica again to tell us more about the closure. We had to close because um, staff contracted COVID and uh, public health was pretty slow in responding to the protocols. Um, And then what ended up happening was that we had to shut down and we had to move all of the residents to a hotel um, while the the shelter was being like uh, disinfected and put to to the standards um, for so it could be safe again. Um, and seven employees, like I, I didn't, I didn't contract it, but seven of my colleagues uh, contracted COVID because it's pretty challenging, especially in a space like um, the Native Women's Shelter, where a lot of the, the spaces are shared. Um, there could have been so many things done beforehand. Um, like providing people with hotel rooms um, to be able to self-isolate. There was like all these guidelines were being put at the beginning of the pandemic and we kept going back to the city and government and public health saying, well, it's impossible for us to put these guidelines into place um, because of the limitations of the space. It was very clear that the the rules for everyone else's society didn't apply to the homeless population. So that... It was a, we were all being told to stay home and to self isolate. But if you're living on the street, um, you can share, let's say, a uh, dormitory and have bunk beds. You know, <laughs> like it just did not make any sense. That was Jessica from Native Women's Shelter. Here's Liz talking about the city's general response to COVID nineteen in relation to people experiencing homelessness. So we needed tents in our parks, giving out food to people before COVID ever happened. There were already, right, like there were already thousands of um, people in the city who are like underfed and malnourished because they don't have enough access to food. So to me, like that's like, like that's cool. We should have already been doing that. Public bathrooms, that's cool. We should have already been doing that. You know, like what people actually need to fight this virus to stay protected from this virus is housing. And anything short of that is a stopgap solution and that's always been the case and they needed again they needed that before there was like a deadly virus on the street talking about a population that was already dealing with the overdose crisis and was already dealing with like tuberculosis was already dealing with all sorts of um you know like threats to their health that are coming from um their environment so like like that's cool that there's a tent in the park like i'm not saying that that's not a positive thing but it feels like, you know, not nearly enough to close the gap between, like, where we started and where we need to get to. There are um, community organizations, like, we do what we can, right? And, like, we um, work really hard to uh, gain access to funding so that we can provide um, all sorts of resources to our clients. But there are things that, like, are simply either out of our reach or, um, like, really, really expensive and, like, really, really hard to get. It's also like sometimes we're working at cross purposes with the city. So a porta potty is an example of a thing that's like really hard for community organization to um, to afford and like maintain, especially some of the smaller community orgs. Um, 
or like, you know, uh, like coalitions of people who are trying to help street and people. And then like, you know, the things like providing water or providing like hand washing stations, you know, like I have um, pals and coworkers who set up um, hand washing stations like around the city. Um, and the thing is like, we're talking, when I say a hand washing station, like we're talking in like, in the most like basic of cases, we're talking about like a jug of water on, a, on the street with like a thing of soap attached to it, you know? And it's like, we can't do, we can't do what the city can do. And like half the time, like we are dealing with either property owners or like city employees who are like clearing these things away, right? Once they are set up. So like, not only is it like, wow, like if we have the resources of the city, we could do something like better and sturdier and more useful and safer than what we're doing right now. But on top of that, it's like, you know, we're not necessarily, like the city had at the corner of like Milton and Park, like where this accident happened, um, there used to be a uh, a porta potty, and then they just like without explanation took it away a few weeks ago. People didn't stop having to use the bathroom, so why isn't there a porta potty there anymore? That was Liz from Head and Hands talking about the hostility of the city, both on a physical and on a political level. Another consequence of the pandemic was the borders closing. As a result, drug supply chains have been interrupted. This, of course, affects both sheltered and unsheltered people who use drugs, but unsheltered users are less likely to have access to safe supplies. Here's Mariana from Ravsim. Avec la fermeture des frontières, on sait qu'il y a encore de la marchandise qui transite, mais en beaucoup plus petit nombre, ce qui s'en sort, c'est qu'il y a beaucoup moins de drogue qui entre au Canada. Puis, pour répondre à la demande, les personnes, les revendeurs de drogue, ce qu'ils vont faire, c'est qu'ils vont couper avec des substances de qualité moindre. Donc, euh, globalement, oui, on retrouve euh, des drogues de moindre qualité, mais ce qui est aussi inquiétant, c'est qu'on retrouve beaucoup plus de fentanyl en ce moment, non seulement à Montréal. Euh, je sais, par exemple, qu'il y a, il y a un, un organisme de la Ville de Québec qui disait, depuis le début de la pandémie, avoir doublé le nombre de surdoses. À Montréal, il y a également là, des grandes augmentations. Euh, je ne pourrais pas vous dire les chiffres exacts, par contre, mais avec la grande augmentation des surdoses, c'est extrêmement inquiétant Euh, surtout euh, en termes des campements, quand on encourage les gens à s'isoler, euh, à se cacher là, pour pouvoir conserver leur campement. Mais si c'est des gens qui consomment des drogues, puis qu'ils consomment seuls, on sait qu'une surdose peut euh, être mortelle. Donc, on s'inquiète beaucoup, beaucoup, beaucoup en ce moment pour les personnes qui consomment des drogues. Euh, on pense que la solution... Euh, La solution est tellement simple, malheureusement, mais il n'y a pas le courage politique pour y aller. Mais euh, en permettant là, aux pharmacies de donner des traitements de remplacement, en, en offrant un self-safe supply de drogue, on pourrait euh, sauver la vie de personnes en ce moment. That was Mariana from Rapsim. And here's Liz from Head and Hands. During the lockdown, um, immediately at the outset, three of the four supervised consumption sites were closed. Um, now they've opened back up, but there was a period of time there where it was just cactus, um, which is not a mobile site. It's located near Barry Ecom, and um, they do a lot of great work, but there's a lot of people who aren't going to be able to get there. Um, so that was really hard. Uh, that was hard for a lot of people. It was hard even accessing gear for a while, um, so accessing harm reduction supplies for people who use drugs. Um, the drug supply itself has changed, like, as you mentioned, um, so because there's less things coming in from overseas, that's going to shift like the balance of like what we're seeing um, being sold to people here. Uh, we've heard a lot about 
purple heroin, um, which has fentanyl mixed into it. Um, and I believe also uh, some kind of benzo, but um, that's been, that's led to a lot of overdoses um, in different parts of Canada, um, but uh, definitely here in Quebec. Um, as well as like a thing we've been trying to warn people about, um, it's never like a safe time to a hundred, I mean, listen, like life is never a hundred percent safe, but uh, definitely like buying drugs um, under prohibition um, on the black market is like a tricky thing, um, even before the pandemic. And then everything just got uh, got more complicated. But, um, you know, it's already been like, it, you know, we, t- we talk about um, the overdoses associated to the, opioid, uh, pan- to the opioid crisis. And like, I think a lot of us would measure that as like starting like in the mid 2010s kind of. But like there's been overdoses happening because of uh, you know tainted drug supply under prohibition like for years and years. Um, but like even yeah like the the numbers were like pretty high in um, in Canada and in Quebec like um, already. So in, I know from like 2018 like there were um, 200 oh, sorry 800 fatal overdoses um, in Montreal. So like we were already like seeking all kinds of resources that we don't have here, for example, like trying to do like drug checking. And now we're trying to open up those programs, like with all the additional hoops of COVID. And of course with supervised consumption, like, you know, if, if we're talking about these, like we had like all designed these little rooms and you've got like a certain amount of like tables, right. And a certain amount of spaces for people to use. And now they've got to be like that much further apart. Um, as well as of course, like, you know, when somebody overdoses on opioids, you know, they're often um, like experiencing like respiratory distress, doing mouth to mouth when there is um, a deadly virus going around that is spread through um, the droplets or whatever, you know, um, putting your mouth right on some stranger's mouth like suddenly becomes like a higher risk kind of proposition. So the whole thing has... Uh, added challenges and added barriers um, to providing service. That was Liz. As we discussed earlier, people without shelter couldn't quarantine during the height of the lockdown, which means that the enforcement of such measures gave police free range to target people on the streets. Here's Jessica from Native Women's Shelter. There's been an increased uh, presence of police. Um, I mean, we saw homeless people being ticketed uh, for not social distancing. Uh, we had asked that the city be tolerant of tents being popped up. Um, the uh, city made sure they, they tolerated for a little bit, and then they made the, the SPVM take all the tents down. Um, so there has been very little tolerance of um, homeless people taking up public space when there isn't uh, many services offered for, for a lot of um for a lot of homeless folks uh, in Montreal. So um, it's been compared to other cities, not to say other cities, there's been a quite a lot less tolerance. And I also like to point out that Montreal spends probably the most amount of money on policing than any other city in Canada. That was Jessica from Native Women's Shelter. And here's Mariana from Rapsim. There are several problems that come for the people in situation aux policiers, alors qu'on sait, euh, puis ça a été documenté, ça a été extrêmement médiatisé, on sait qu'à Montréal, euh, il y a de la discrimination systémique au sein des forces de police. On a beaucoup, beaucoup 
euh, documentés du profilage racial, du profilage social. On pense entre autres aux femmes autochtones qui sont 11 fois, euh, qui ont 11 fois plus de chances là, de se faire interpeller par les policiers que les femmes blanches. Bien, à ce moment-là, quand on donne des nouveaux pouvoirs euh, aux policiers, bien, c'est sûr qu'on va constater qu'il y a plus d'infractions qui sont données pour les personnes déjà marginalisées. Puis, souvenez-vous, si on était dans un parc lors euh, du début de la, de la COVID-19, euh, puis on se faisait interpeller par les policiers, la manière de prouver qu'on n'était pas euh, en train de briser la loi, c'était de présenter des pièces d'identité, puis euh, de démontrer qu'on habitait à la même adresse avec la personne avec qui on était assis. Donc, ça peut être un couple, ça peut être des colocs, ça peut être une famille, les gens donnaient une preuve de résidence. Puis à partir de ce moment-là, le policier disait « bon, mais c'est vrai que vous êtes plus que 10 » ou « c'est vrai que vous êtes à moins de 2 mètres, mais vous habitez ensemble, donc c'est correct ». Les personnes en situation de différence n'ont pas d'adresse par définition. C'est des gens euh, qui, euh, qui peuvent habiter ensemble sans avoir la même adresse là, à, à leur, euh, leur pièce d'identité. Donc, par exemple, on peut penser à un couple. Les deux sont en situation d'itinérance, les deux fréquentent des refuges depuis des mois, mais ils n'ont pas d'adresse, ils n'ont pas moyen de prouver qu'ils habitent ensemble. Donc, le, la définition de qu'est-ce qui est une famille, qu'est-ce qui est des gens qui habitent ensemble est vraiment différente pour les personnes en situation d'itinérance. Puis, euh, malgré le fait qu'il y a des gens qui habitaient ensemble, il y a des gens qui étaient toujours dans les mêmes refuges, qui fréquentaient les mêmes euh, hébergements, mais ces gens-là ont pu se voir donner l'étiquette. Euh, Puis, euh, euh, on parlait là, de 1500 d'amende. Puis, pour une première offense, ça, ça inclut les frais. Puis, la deuxième offense venait à être plus chère. Puis, euh, c'est des gens qui, à la base, n'ont pas les moyens de payer ça. S'il y avait 1500 je peux vous dire qu'il euh, y aurait d'autres choses avant l'étiquette dans leurs besoins primaires à combler. Donc, euh, on vient tout simplement, là, ce que ça vient faire, toute cette, euh, cette répression policière puis euh, ces, euh, ces contraventions-là, ben, ça vient donner, euh, ça vient judiciariser. Ces gens-là, éventuellement, ben, ils vont avoir un dossier, ils vont avoir des amendes au pays, ils vont devoir faire des apparitions à la cour, etc. Donc, justement, la présence policière, ça a été très décrié dans les médias euh, par rapport là, au profilage des policiers. Puis là, on voit apparaître des programmes plus sociaux, donc des policiers qui vont faire de l'intervention communautaire, des policiers qui vont être présents dans des parcs. Euh, nous, au RAPSIM, on trouve ça inquiétant parce qu'on trouve que ce n'est pas euh, à la police de faire de l'intervention. Euh, pourquoi? Mais tout simplement parce que euh, les policiers, même s'ils prétendent faire de l'intervention, ça reste des gens qui sont armés, ça reste des gens qui sont identifiés aux couleurs de la police. Puis, euh, c'est des gens aussi qui ont la capacité de porter... Euh, de porter des accusations, en fait, d'arrêter des personnes. Donc, on sait que euh, les personnes les plus marginalisées, les personnes qui ont déjà des expériences négatives avec les policiers par le passé, vont pas voir un policier qui fait euh, l'intervention sociale puis dire « Ah, ben celui-là, il doit être différent de tous les autres, je vais lui faire confiance, euh, je vais m'ouvrir, je vais aller chercher des services. Euh, » Au contraire, la crainte, c'est euh, qu'il y a des présences policières dans des endroits qui sont... Euh, euh, qui sont reconnaissables comme étant des endroits très fréquentés par les populations de situation itinérante, ben, peuvent amener à des déplacements de ces populations-là qui vont vouloir euh, fuir un peu le, la présence policière qui est très forte, puis ça leur enlève un peu leur lieu d'appartenance. Habituellement, le, comment ça fonctionne pour les campements? Ça va être un campement qui est plus visible, un campement qui est plus nombreux, va susciter plus de plaintes de la part de la population, puis une fois qu'il y a des plaintes de la population, mais là, ça donne les outils à la ville 
d'ordonner un démantèlement. Il y a eu certains lieux où ça a été discuté, où il y a eu plus de tolérance, mais globalement, euh, ils vont évoquer pour démanteler les campements, donc euh, la, la sécurité, là, donc l'insalubrité, ils vont évoquer le danger d'incendie, euh, ils vont évoquer les plaintes citoyennes, euh, le fait que ça peut être insalubre parce que justement, il n'y a pas de mécanisme pour la collecte des déchets, il peut ne pas avoir d'installation sanitaire à proximité, etc. As Mariana says, the SPVM disproportionately targets indigenous people, black people, and people of color. But cops only enforce existing oppressive structures. Indigenous people are overrepresented when it comes to homelessness in Montreal. Though indigenous people only make up 0.6% of the city's population, they make up 10% of the homeless population. And 40% of the indigenous homeless population is Inuit. Jesse Thistle, a Métis Cree author, professor, and advocate, argues that indigenous homelessness is not just defined by the lack of stable or appropriate housing, but by cycles of displacement and dispossession. This links indigenous homelessness to cycles of colonialism and colonization. Here's Jessica from the Native Women's Shelter, talking about indigenous unsheltered population at Capo Square and the need for more indigenous-specific services. When we talk about like a genocide, when people like think about a genocide, when we talk about a genocide of uh, indigenous population here in Canada, this is part of it. So it just, everything just got exasperated. And, um, you know, I can't help but think it, that it's intentional because a lot of times, you know, people view homeless people as a burden to the system and a burden to society. Um, and it's just like organizations like that work in homelessness that we have to push all the time to view people with dignity and as human beings. So what happened with Open Door was that this it was owned by a church and it was sold to condo developers. And then they could not find any other space in the area to rent. Nobody wanted to rent it to them because nobody wanted a homeless shelter um, drop-in center and the Cabot Square area. And there's a lot of gentrification as well in the Cabot Square area. Um, so, and we told city officials that if this drop-in center isn't here in this area, people will die. And within that year, we lost 14 people. So that's what we mean when we say it's intentional. We warned them, we knew it would happen. We knew that people would not move. Like there's people who are homeless in that area for the past 20 years. They're not going to leave. Um, as well, like the like if you look at the Cabot Square, how it was the, during the time with Denis Coderre uh, when he was mayor, um, they took away all the grass and they put only cement so that people can't sleep on on the uh, on uh, in the park. Um, like there was recently the benches that they put, like, uh, there was like benches where they put like kind of like a bar in between. So that's the intentional set so that homeless people cannot sleep on benches. They cannot take up, up the public space. Now we're having an issue with washrooms. Like there was some, um, like in the Milton park area, we, the, the indigenous community had put pressure to put, um, like the porta potties. So at least that people can have somewhere to go to the washroom and now it's been removed and now a lot of the places are um, like in malls or in restaurants and stuff because of COVID are profiling so if you are homeless and you do look homeless they're not going to let you come and use their their bathrooms so this is what we mean by it being very intentional um, because we know that this is like you're denying people from like very basic human rights like going to the washroom um, just having a place to sleep. So, I mean, it's just like 
is having some kind of when we talk about reconciliation is actually putting things into place so that the indigenous community can you know heal from a lot of the pain and suffering that has been done by government um, it's putting culturally appropriate services like we've been asking for a long time for an indigenous health center um, you know I accompany women all the time in the healthcare system they experience enormous amount of racism it is very difficult for people to get services so you know, to have an Indigenous health centre. And, you know, there's like Toronto has that, Vancouver has that. Um, you know, detox, maybe a, a wet shelter. We definitely need a wet shelter. Wet shelter somewhere where people who have uh, substance abuse problems with alcohol can go and use in a safe way. Um, you know, this will make that crime will go down. Like when you have people that are in constant survival mode, because they have uh, issues with addiction, um, you know, crime goes up. But if we are able to provide people with a safe place um, and, you know, treat people with harm reduction services with dignity. That was Jessica from the Native Women's Shelter. Here's Sue, a co-founder of Solidarity Milton Park, talking about the Inuit unsheltered community in Milton Park. Uh, My name is Sue Tardif. I am a member of the Milton Park community. I've lived um, in a co-op in Milton Park since uh, 2002, since my son was born. Um, in 2015, myself and uh, France Labrec started uh, Solidarity Milton Park, which is a values-based um, and relation-based community grassroots initiative. Um, much of our work has been done with the unsheltered community. Um, and uh, and as a values-based set of initiatives, it's really important um, for us that the the core of anything we do is always the people who are most directly affected themselves. And since November 2015, at the request of um, the unsheltered community, we have been doing a weekly meal share on Saturdays. Um, and what that is is just um, it's a hot meal. Uh, and we go to where people are, so we actually walk around with it. We have enough food for about 25 to 35 people. And we really are inspired by Centre Paul Roulant and, and, and their mission about using food as a vehicle for relationship. Uh, and so this is not about, our, our, our initiatives are not in any way um, about kind of the charitable mindset of, of um, feeding people or that we're feeding the homeless or we're doing... That kind that is not in any way what we're doing. Um, uh, more what I would refer to it as maybe as radical neighboring is just meeting people where they're at. The unsheltered community in Milton Park is largely um, First Nations and Inuit, um, along with other people that have come from uh, that kind of have escaped from other countries that have been colonized and come. Uh, to these territories for a better life and then find themselves in a situation um, in being unsheltered as well. When the virus started about maybe three weeks to a month into the virus, magically uh, a toilet appeared at the very spot that we needed it and that we had been demanding it for two years. Um, And it, uh, yeah, I really, I really, I'm emotional about it, which is so ridiculous for a toilet, but it really, just having a toilet, the difference that that made for people out there is, is really, I can't even begin to tell you. And then we have the added dimension here of people are very sick. So, you know, 
um, people experience diarrhea and that kind of stuff. And without a toilet, what do people do, right? So this was already critical before the virus, um, but then the virus came, any of the businesses where people could go in and use toilets shut down. And then there was literally like nowhere for people to shit, but on the street or in the alley or in people's flower boxes, right? So, yeah. So um, it's been a hugely demoralizing experience to try to get a very, very basic and necessary and um, life threatening. I mean, it is life threatening in certain cases to not have for people to not have a toilet, right? So it's also a question of public health. And it's a question of everybody's public health in that particular area. There were three toilets installed in Milton Park. Um, Two of them are still there. um, But the one that is the most critical and the most needed by the most people is the one that they removed. Um, so, but they go back to saying, oh yes, but we've only removed one toilet. People can walk two blocks to the other toilet. Um, and, and that is clearly not the case. Um, so my understanding in talking to neighbors was that, um, the, the people that live around there, um, were upset because when the truck that came to clean the toilet out, um, came, apparently the truck comes uh, twice a day, which is an indication of how much that toilet is used. Um, when uh, when they come, apparently in cleaning the toilet, the truck itself vents off, um, you know, the smell of 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 toilets, right? And uh, and so people living there were upset about it and complained in some way to the city. It's unclear to me how big the complaint was because I'm like, Hey, we begged for a toilet for two years and we got nothing. And what is this? Like these folks just make a complaint and the next day it's gone. When we target people and we make people vulnerable where, where people's lives are literally every day about life and death, literally. um, And then we, 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 we make things that much harder for them we're, oh, no, we're not going to put a toilet where you are. We're going to make you have to walk for it, right? Um, you know, th- these are, these are t- to me, these are functions of colonial capitalism um, and they're functions of maintaining people being in a state of homelessness so that the rest of us see that as a model, uh, you know, to keep our crappy jobs, to keep copying for, for capitalism, to keep, you know, buying stuff to make ourselves feel better and ignoring kind of like the reality of, again, the most targeted people who are the first people of these territories um, and territories up north, which we have fully colonized um, and, and, uh, and capitalized on. I mean, I, you know, I think the first just very basic reality is that that we have bodies, people have bodies and we need physical space to put our bodies when we're talking about a state of ongoing colonization usually enacted through the spvm in this case um, we're talking about a situation where people are constantly and consistently being dispossessed and displaced from wherever they're placing their body Um, that corner has been an empty lot for a number of years now. Um, the developer that bought it wanted to have the zoning changed so that he could build higher um, and, of course, build condos. And he was unsuccessful in that. Um, so my understanding is that he is selling the property 
In the meantime, it has been a big open space that has been a saving grace, really, um, to people in the unsheltered community because it's a place where people can be. It's a place. It's a place where people can gather together. Uh, we start the meal share at that corner in that parking lot. In that time, also, we saw the dissolution of um, a good chunk of the NGO industrial complex that supports people here during the days, even Monday to Friday. Um, and so it, uh, that, that was, uh, really a massive blow to people as well as, as the, the, the night shelters stayed open. Uh, so people, those who access shelters, cause not everybody accesses shelters for very good reasons. Um, but those that do access shelters could go to shelters in the evening or in the evening and at night, but there was nothing for people during the day. Um, in the meantime, the city stopped picking up garbage, um, particularly around that intersection. And so garbage started to pile up. Stores were not accepting bottles or cans back. So bottles and cans started to pile up and bottles getting broken started to pile up. So it was really this physical sense, just physically, before you even think about people inhabiting all of that. Um, it was just very much a physical kind of apocalypse, a sense of apocalypse. And then we're talking also about, again, very specific to the Milton Park community um, and the unsheltered community here is the intergener intergenerational trauma of, of this happening before. Colonizers using um, diseases like smallpox, like tuberculosis, like any of the diseases that we have vaccinations for, using those diseases as biological warfare towards uh, Indigenous and Inuit uh, communities in the past and, and now still to this day. Um, and so it, it, it really, you know, there was a lot of resonance um, with that. There was a lot of, a massive amount of trauma coming up for people with that. Um, a massive amount of um, trauma coming up for people being left behind. Um, and for the orgs just, again, dissolving. Um, and, and, and so, you know, the resources were almost nothing, um, during the evenings and on weekends, um, all, almost all street work ceased. There were, uh, one street worker, I think two street workers that were kind of trying to maintain, um, for a period of time, but two street workers also can't meet the needs of everybody, especially when they don't have the resources of the NGOs because the NGOs are closed. Um, so yeah, so it, it was really a hellscape and it's always a hellscape. Um, I mean, we are talking in my view about ongoing colonization and colonial genocide. So it is a war out there for people and because people are unsheltered, they are not protected from it. You know, we have this idea that like we can walk up to people who are unsheltered anytime and do whatever we want to them, whether it's kind and nice or whether it's evil and, and abusive, you know, there's that people are in, in some ways are almost public property because they do not have the defense of having shelter. Um, so it is very much um, a war out there and it very much felt like that is like to me, especially who I don't live in that war. I am in relationship with people who are in that, but I, that is not a direct experience that I have. Um, but, but this experience um, of, of that kind of month period of time 
really just, yeah, it, it, it just, yeah, I, I, I don't even know what to say about that. So after that, um, things started to kick in a little bit in terms of um, what the city was doing um, and what the city was funding. And the city started throwing money out to organizations, which, by the way, we know that that will, you know, organizations are, will get hit hard with austerity next year. As a result, the, the Ville is going to have to recoup some of that cash. Um, so we're expecting deeper, deeper cuts uh, to come in the NGO industrial complex. In the meantime, um, again, insisting that we needed uh, a toilet and insisting that we also needed a wash station um, at that corner uh, with soap. Um, the workers on the street um, did what they could to kind of, you know, do a DIY kind of wash station for people and to keep that maintained. Um, but that was also really difficult um, for the, the workers to be doing that as well, logistically. And, um, and so the brainchild of the Ville and the, the, you know, the idea of Ville bureaucrats was, hey, we'll put a, a big centralized place for unsheltered people in jean Mons Park. Um, where there'll be toilets, there'll be wash stations, we'll serve sandwiches and other food. People can come and visit and social distance under, you know, under Ville, little Ville de Montréal tents. And it's all very lovely, right? Um, and no doubt some people used um, those services. But again, when we are talking about targeted vulnerable people who are in various states of physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual distress because, directly because of colonization, people are not gonna be walking up a mountain, uh, the mountain to go to the bathroom. That is just, that's not something that's going to happen. Um, and so again, the insistence that services need to be where people are. But there's also this overwhelming idea, and I've heard this over and over again from um, you know, from neighbors in the community, from people on committees, that if you make things too comfortable for people, i.e. having a toilet being too comfortable, um, that people will stay <laughs> or more people will come. Um, and this is just entirely ridiculous. People are here and people have been here for at least the 18 years that I've lived here. So short of doing all-out colonizer, bringing in police to physically remove people from the situation, which could happen, um, you know, police clear out areas of unsheltered people all the time. Um, but short of that, people are here. And so um, people need the basic um, to survive, to make it livable, like just basically livable in a fully unlivable situation to begin with. That was Sue from Solidarity Milton Park. So people experiencing homelessness in Montreal don't have access to basic services. They're hyper-visible, yet invisibilized, turn into public space themselves. And the extreme weather has also been difficult. The heat waves in July, the constant rain these past few weeks. And given that it seems like the pandemic will last into the fall and winter, people like Liz are worried about what's to come. I'm dreading the winter. Um... It's been it's been hot this summer, but when it's hot, you can get into the shade. Um, 
and water is a problem, but there's something really immediate about the cold. Um, I'm very nervous about for like what's coming and what it's going to mean for the shelters and for their capacity um, to bring people inside. The weather is a massive challenge um, of street work always, but yes, this year has been very hard. Um, it's been brutally hot on like a lot of days. And like I said, it's, it's hard to distribute water. Um, it's heavy <laughs> um, and it's hard to get it around. It's hard to keep it cold. Um, but like we're trying, uh, we will keep trying in the winter to distribute sleeping bags and distribute tents um, and support people who need to be outside. But um, it's a really hard thing about Montreal. Like we, we kind of see both extremes um, and we see cold like very few, you know, other places in the world do. Liz also argues that the problems faced by the unsheltered population in Montreal are structural and require structural solutions. I mean, housing always. Um, access to clean water, um, truly universal health care, a universal basic income, uh, and the legalization of drugs or decriminalization. I mean, that's a conversation, but the end of prohibition. Um, I think those would all be pretty high on my list. That's if we leave out, you know, like forms of systemic discrimination, but just in terms of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, like how can we, uh, like get people to a place where they've got like a roof over their head and enough food to eat and like a reasonable shot of physical health um, and mental health, you know? Um, I think that those would be amongst the things. And like, what I think what's frustrating about them is like, you know, it's not, uh, you know, like I could go on, I could give you like another 10, you know, like we should be um, abolishing the police and like opening up the prisons and like, um, there's like a whole lot of other things uh, to add to that, but like none of them are new, you know, like there's nothing that people are putting forward now that we haven't been talking about for years. That was Liz from Head and Hands. And here's Jessica from the Native Women's Shelter on the Defund the Police Coalition. Like we know that if we gave people homes, the police would not have <laughs> probably not as nearly the work that they're doing right now. Um, as we've seen, like the amount of Indigenous people that are killed by police across Canada, um, that police are just not the, equipped to deal with a lot of issues like mental health or domestic violence. Um, so we would we are asking that with the, the coalition defund the police to slash the budget by 50 percent, is 665 million dollars. Um, and put that money towards housing, um, towards uh, services like detox, uh, mental health services. Uh, no longer have police respond to mental health crisis. Like we had a situation at Cabot Square where we had an Indigenous woman who was going through a mental health crisis. And when we called to have her because she wanted to go to the hospital, um, often the ambulance will show up with police, but they came with like quite a few police officers and canine units and it was just very very stressful uh, and was not as well as in any way helpful so we've asked like police to do all these like all these services um, that are they're not really qualified to do Um, so we're definitely like we are you know asking that the city of Montreal no longer invest in police services and actually invest in the root causes of, of a lot of the problems that we see. 
I went to the commemoration for Kitty Kackenkirk and Dina K. Matt that took place at Cabo Square on Wednesday. Both women were Inuit and had been living in Montreal without shelter for years, and both were killed by being hit by cars in July. Many argued that their deaths were a result of the lack of services and the hostility of the city. At the commemoration, journalists swamped people who shared stories honoring the two women. Photographers swooped in on every display of emotion. To be honest, I found the way that journalists seemed entitled to the emotions of others pretty revolting. I always have difficulty covering protests or visuals. I think it's one thing to talk to people who are media contacts, or who work for organizations that generally work with the media. Those people, in a sense, signed up for this odd world of media and mediation. But people who are there to grieve, to process emotion, or are just in the park because they're, that's where they hang out, aren't any more or less available to be bothered by journalists trying to tell their story than anyone else. So when I went to Cabo Square on Wednesday, and when I went a few times the week before, I didn't record the people I spoke to. I don't know if that was the right call or not, but I just couldn't bring myself to ask the people I was talking to if they were willing to be recorded. I feel that to record people as people, and not as professionals or experts, so to speak, one needs a much deeper relationship than a couple conversations in a park. Here's part of my conversation with David Chapman from Resilience Montreal on the saturation of media in Cabo Square. So yeah, we were just talking about um, like the media here and the media presence and the kind of, you were saying there was an oversaturation of media um, in the area during COVID. Yeah, so during during COVID, there's certainly been lots of media in the park. And, and uh, on the one hand, well, it creates an awkward situation because on the one hand, we... We recognize that media attention is very important. Why is it important? Because, you know, well, a wise person once told me, you know, if you're middle class, you have the power of law. And uh, if you're homeless, you have the power of media. Uh, meaning it's the media is sort of the, you know, the, the last <laughs> public support that the homeless community gets. And it's, it's a sad reality, but it's true that uh, on the one hand, we need media in order to uh, keep governments responsible uh, and and to keep services operating for the homeless communities. Um, and yet, on the other hand, um, often you get a free-range approach where photographers and camera people feel free to cap capture people's images without consent. Uh, and it, and you know this this. Spring and summer, we've often found ourselves as staff of Resilience Montreal chasing photographers around the park to, you know, just try and get them to be more responsible in getting people's permission before taking photos. Um, in fact, just in the last two weeks, I had this experience <laughs> of chasing a photographer and just making sure that he was, you know, asking people's permission before uh, taking their picture. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's tough. Uh, and so on the one hand, the media is is really important to, to bring a, uh, you know, a certain responsibility to governments. And yet at the same time, the media can be uh, quite exploitative in the way in which they engage the, the homeless population and and in the way in which uh, they cover them, you know, and, and so. It's yeah, it's been a, a kind of an uneasy summer here around Cabot Square because, you know, um, 
on the one hand, we need the media. We need that bigger picture. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, we need the media. We need the media to, to show a, a bigger picture, to 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 uh, to to look at the 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 bigger historical Canadian struggles, for example, the history of colonialism in this country and and its and the and sort of the, some of the root causes to homelessness and, and why there is such an overrepresentation, for example, among indigenous populations on the streets. Um, and uh, so we need the, the media in some ways, and yet we just wish at times that they'd be uh, more responsible. You've been listening to No New Normal, a special edition of CKUT's Off the Hour. No New Normal examines the structural rifts laid bare by the COVID-19 pandemic and the convergent struggles that have come as a result. Today's episode was Quarantine Without Shelter, Experiencing Homelessness During a Pandemic. Our next episode will unpack the structural links between the four episodes so far. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter, or keep listening to Off the Hour for updates on when the next episode will be aired. I'm Athena Khalid. Thanks to James Ward and Gao Mahadevan for production, to Emily Black for research and graphics, and to Sasha Kay for the theme. Thanks as well to Liz, Jessica, Mariana, and Sue for taking the time to talk to us.